Knowing how to swim. An empty pageant, a stage play, flocks of sheep, herds of cattle, a bone flung among a pack of dogs, a crumb tossed into a pond of fish, ants loaded and laboring, mice scared and scampering, puppets jerking on their strings. That is life. In the midst of it all, you must take your stand, good temperedly and without disdain, yet always aware that a man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. Marcus Aurelius, Meditations February 2010 It's not the rats who first abandon a sinking ship. It's the crew members who know how to swim. By January 2010, it was abundantly clear that adchemy was a complete failure, a hecatomb of human effort sacrificed at the false altar of Murthy's ego. Real-life experience is instructive, but the tuition is high. The first sign of trouble was an externally visible one, a symptom that any suitably experienced startup practitioner could have detected. Nobody from the early days of the company was still around other than Murthy. Every other single co-founder or early employee had left. As Vonnegut wrote in Bluebeard, never trust the survivor of a massacre until you know what he did to survive. And indeed, in this case, Murthy wasn't a mere survivor, but rather an author of said massacre. Like Stalin's USSR doctoring photos featuring former party favorites, removing the now-purged victims from its history, a startup will disappear the former founders and employees from its team page online. The official history of the startup, at least as told by itself, will only ever mention the current leadership and reweave some narrative about how the current team is the God-ordained combination of human talents that will take the startup to the stratosphere. This is utter tripe, but it's the party line you'll be told. Discreet inquiries on Crunchbase or LinkedIn or emails to professional connections tell the real tale. Footnote. Crunchbase is the database of people and companies that's the who's who, if I can use that phrase without puking, of Silicon Valley. The parent publication of Crunchbase, TechCrunch, hence the name, is the day-to-day -day news and gossip rag of the Silicon Valley Carnival. End footnote. Don't work for the survivors or architects of massacres. You'll live just long enough to regret it. Here's a second sign. The startup makes money, lots of it. You heard right. This was another illustrative adchemy problem, though a relatively rare one. Adchemy made software that automated and optimized the laborious task of running ad campaigns. In Silicon Valley, there's a piece of tech-speak called dogfooding, which basically means using your own product. Footnote. The origin of the term dogfooding is supposedly found in 80s Microsoft, which coined the phrase from Alpo dog food commercials at the time, wherein Lorne Green assured a perhaps dubious public that he fed his own dogs Alpo ergo dog food, as the valley term for using your own product, with the implication of its being a vote of confidence. End footnote. The idea in this case was to have a marketing team actually running marketing campaigns and then selling the prospective customers in a legal but slightly sketchy underbelly of the online world called the lead generation industry. Adkami sold nothing itself, only the lists of people it had found via ads to those who actually sold something like a mortgage refinancing or a criminology degree. 
It's serious business, though. An ad can be made something like $6 million per month selling mortgage leads to Quicken and online education leads to the University of Phoenix. I want to take a shower just reading those names. In the same way that a trust fund just makes a drug addict's spiral more long-lasting and painful, a cash-generating business that doesn't improve the product postpones the inevitable by floating the charade, all the while actually making failure more likely. This strategy can work as far as keeping a company afloat while it's working out the kinks in its core program, but it's tricky, and it requires absolute management discipline to not lose focus on the product the company was created to perfect. Murthy was like the one heroin-addicted lab rat who could never stop hitting the lever for more. Third, Adkemi had no clients for the actual product. An absolutely clear sign of flailing failure is when a company's quarterly report features a new set of corporate logos, each a breathlessly awaited beta customer who's just going to blow the doors off usage or revenue in the future. Footnote. More startup ease for you. Products are loosely classified into two initial versions, alpha and beta. Alpha is a very incomplete and probably buggy version of the product that only very daring, to not say foolish, test clients, alpha customers, would even venture to try. Beta is still an initial version, but with most of the first kinks fixed. A beta customer is therefore an early customer, but still one using a product vaguely on this side of more or less a production running version. End footnote. That's fine for one quarterly report, but after a year's worth of an ever-changing list of beta customers, with none morphing into full-on clients with contracts and recurring revenue, you're chasing a mirage. All you're seeing is a logo version of the sales team's lead list as they churn through potential clients. The last symptom of terminal illness, counterintuitively enough, is loyal employees. Despite the mismanagement, Many of Adkemi's 200 or so employees felt a strong sense of loyalty to both Murthy and the company. Many of these were very skilled professionals who could have been employed elsewhere, who nonetheless put up not only with the poor management of the company, but also with outright mistreatment. Murthy's tantrums were legendary, and he often insulted employees and in some instances fired them without cause. He once broke my finger when he flung a baseball at me with no warning. I was standing in front of floor-to-ceiling glass and was forced to catch a fastball, and then mocked me for it publicly for months, merely for the sake of fun. Footnote. He broke my left ring finger, right across the last joint, in a common baseball injury known as mallet finger. During the later strife with Adkemi I'll soon tell you about, I used to intentionally bend that joint with my other hand to feel the dull ache from the poorly setting break and remind myself of whom I was up against. End footnote. And yet many of his employees spoke well of the company and even exercised their options to buy company stock, causing them to lose large portions of their life savings when the company folded. Footnote. Startup employees who leave before a liquidity event, like an IPO or an acquisition, have a set period, usually 90 days, to either exercise their options, often at considerable cost, or lose whatever equity compensation they received, no matter how long they've been at the company. The way to think about startup employment is this. You're earning the right, via your labor and time, to invest in the company at the stock price of the last fundraising round, just as the company's initial venture capitalists did. That's the real compensation you're earning, and many a former employee agonizes over the decision of whether to plunk down the pile of money or not. 
If you wouldn't invest in a company from the get-go, you're a fool to work for it, as the cash compensation in a startup is typically woefully below market. End footnote. Even after quitting or being fired, former employees would host Adkami alum happy hours and get back together, like some reunion tour. Here's the lesson. When the company's employee retention strategy is cultivating Stockholm Syndrome, you're in the wrong company. St. Augustine thought the best way to heavenly salvation was to know the route to hell, but avoid it. Consider the various paths to hell I've taken for you, dear reader, and do otherwise. If everyone believes in delusions such as democracy or religion, they sort of become true. Certainly more true than when a delusion is nothing but a presumptuous neuronal spark in someone's mind. If you consider yourself a Gates or a Musk, but aren't seen as one, then you enter the realm of felt injustice. You assign yourself a certain value, but society ranks you at another. That difference between society's perception and your own is the gap of injustice you feel. Multiply that gap times your ego, and you get the total balance of rage you're to expend in your startup quest. In just such a rage-filled state, I began working on our Y Combinator application. Two other adchemists and I had clicked socially, and for months were constantly chatting about startup ideas. One you've already met, Matthew McEachin, a.k.a. MRM, with whom I'd built the real-time bidding engine. He was the company's longest-serving and most productive engineer, and we had collaborated, he as lead engineer and I as research scientist, on a number of projects. The second was Argiri Zimnis, a newly minted Ph.D. from a famous artificial intelligence lab at Stanford. He was one of the rising stars at Adkami, due to both his high-level machine learning brains and his coding skill. Aside from our lunchtime conversations and odd Sunday phone call, though, we hadn't formulated any clear business idea. Procrastinating on a Monday, I decided to read an essay by Paul Graham. PG, as he's known to the cognoscenti, founded an online store builder called ViaWeb in the early days of the web, which got bought in the $40 million range in 1997 and eventually became Yahoo Shopping. In his post-acquisition freedom, he created one of the more incredible institutions in Silicon Valley, Y Combinator. Footnote. The name Y Combinator comes from a type of function in the wonky world of formal mathematical logic. Speaking loosely, it's a type of recursive function. In other words, a function that takes itself as an argument. What I imagine PG intended in the name was that Y Combinator was a startup that generated yet more startups, which is indeed what it became. End footnote. Twice a year, every year, Y Combinator accepts a few dozen startup hopefuls into what can only be described as a startup boot camp. Footnote. This number was in the 30 or so range in 2010, but was pushing 100 by 2015. End footnote. They are given a tiny amount of money and the goal of shipping a product by the end of three months. Some come in with nothing but a few hacked-up lines of code and an idea. Some have entire going concerns that have already raised money. Footnote. Among the technical, hacking, as it's understood among civilians, namely illegally breaking into and messing with computer systems, is only a secondary meaning of the word. The primary meaning is the building of systems and software, with a connotation of rough tinkering rather than fine craftsmanship. I hacked an old Windows box to run Apple OS X, a hacker might say about some particularly interesting kludge. A kludge, of course, is an instance of hacking. End footnote. 
Three months later, they all pitch at Demo Day, a major event on the Bay Area's venture capital calendar. Footnote. Venture capitalists, VCs for short, are the betters at the startup casino, funding startups from the earliest stages, at which investments are the price of a new car or less, to the latest, in which funding rounds can be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. End footnote. PG is the leading apostle, to not say messiah, of the startup gospel, and other than maybe Mark Andreessen, possesses the only prose style among techies that doesn't trigger a literary gag reflex. His lucid essays dispense with any ego and pretense and read like a how-to manual for the tech endeavor. Reflecting his background in philosophy and formal logic, his tightly argued disquisitions often read almost syllogistically, like a Socratic dialogue, as he dissects funding rounds, hiring, cash flow, and product development. Having forgotten the URL to his essay library, I entered ycombinator.com into my browser. The minimalist website carried a picture of a geek in a weird orange-walled room, some links to press coverage, and one link that was tantalizingly titled, Apply to Get Funded, Deadline March 3, 2010. Isn't that something? Thought number one, we should apply. Thought number two, it's March 1st. That very afternoon, I pulled the classic move you too should use to seduce a potential co-founder into leaving his or her steady paycheck job. I gave our Geary's a physical copy of How to Start a Startup, a blog post by Paul Graham, which is the crack-like gateway drug to the startup addiction. We spent the next two days clandestinely hammering out our pitch in the office, or playing hooky and working at a nearby Pete's Coffee. I did most of the actual writing. What is writing? It's me, the author, taking the state inside my mind and, via the gift of language, grafting it onto yours. But man invented language in order to better deceive, not inform. That state I'm transmitting is often a false one, but you judge it not by the depth of its emotion in my mind, but by the beauty and pungency of the thought in yours. Thus the best deceivers are called articulate, as they make listeners and readers fall in love with the thoughts projected into their heads. It's the essential step in getting men to write you large checks, women to take off their clothes, and the crowd to read and repeat what you've thought. All with mere words. Memes of meaning strung together according to grammar and good taste. Astonishing when you think about it. The boys started hacking on a basic demo we'd be able to present, assuming we managed to beat the terrible odds and get invited to pitch the YC partners. Specialization of labor was already happening. The boys were good at making computers do hard things via code. I was good at making people do hard things via language, and good at figuring out what big bets were worth making. The boys weren't totally convinced about this YC stuff. The money was a pittance, the equity taken large, the benefit unclear to them. But I was as convinced as a Bible beater is about Jesus that this would be an essential step in our future, and I would be proved more than right. So what idea were we pitching exactly? The short answer? It didn't matter. Like the canniest early-stage investors, YC cared a lot more about the team at this point than whatever improbable idea we might have. The latter was really there only to judge the former. It was valueless in itself. Don't believe me? Think your idea is worth something? Go and try to sell it, and see what sort of price you'll get for it. Ideas without implementation, or without an exceptional team to implement them, are like assholes and opinions. Everyone's got one. 
Incidentally, the fastest way you can indicate your level of startup naivete to a VC or to anybody in tech is either by claiming you're in stealth, that is, with an idea so secretly valuable you can't disclose it, or by forcing someone to sign a non-disclosure agreement before you even discuss it. You may as well tattoo loser on your forehead instead, to save everyone the trouble. To quote one valley sage, if your idea is any good, it won't get stolen. You'll have to jam it down people's throats instead. For the record, though, here's what we came up with. One of the great challenges in marketing is the divide between the online and the offline worlds. What you buy via the Internet and your digital persona is completely separate from what you buy in person, and the two data streams rarely cross. Imagine if an advertiser knew you bought SUV-sized packages of diapers at your local Walmart. How would it target different Internet ads at you? Conversely, if you were searching online for a particular gadget, how do you know if it's sitting at your local Best Buy, ready to be bought, rather than you're waiting two or three days for Amazon Prime? Our idea boiled down to building an app that allowed local store owners to scan a product's barcode, which would then instantly generate an online ad campaign that advertised the fact that the product was for sale locally. Here's some startup pedagogy for you. When confronted with any startup idea, ask yourself one simple question. How many miracles have to happen for this to succeed? If the answer is zero, you're not looking at a startup. You're just dealing with a regular business like a laundry or a trucking business. All you need is capital and minimal execution, and assuming a two-way market, you'll make some profit. To be a startup, miracles need to happen, but a precise number of miracles. Most successful startups depend on one miracle only. For Airbnb, it was getting people to let strangers into their spare bedrooms and weekend cottages. This was a user behavior miracle. For Google, it was creating an exponentially better search service than anything that had existed to date. This was a technical miracle. For Uber or Instacart, it was getting people to book and pay for real-world services via websites or phones. This was a consumer workflow miracle. For Slack, it was getting people to work like they formerly chatted with their girlfriends. This is a business workflow miracle. For the makers of most consumer apps, for example Instagram, the miracle was quite simple, getting users to use your app and then to realize the financial value of your particular twist on a human brain interacting with keyboard or touchscreen. That was Facebook's miracle, getting every college student in America to use its platform during its early years. While there was much technical know-how required in scaling it, and had they fucked that up, it would have killed them. That's not why it succeeded. The uniqueness and complete fickleness of such a miracle are what make investing in consumer-facing apps such a lottery. It really is a user-growth roulette wheel with razor-thin odds. The classic sign of a shitty startup idea is that it requires at least two or more miracles to succeed. This was what was wrong with ours. We had a Bible's worth of miracles to perform. Small business owners had to use us for all their marketing. We had to solve the scanning a barcode with a phone problem. Footnote. The barcode reading problem circa 2010 was still relatively unsolved. A company named Red Laser would soon do so, and it was almost instantly acquired by eBay. End footnote. We had to generate a comprehensive retail product database with relevant metadata like prices, reviews, and model numbers. We had to programmatically generate ad campaigns based on that product database. 
We had to design the world's best small biz marketing and campaign management workflow, one that allowed even unsavvy marketers to be successful. That was five miracles, just for starters, not to even mention practical ones like raising money and getting along with co-founders. It was four miracles too far. Any single one of those could have encompassed an entire funded startup's efforts, and in fact, I could tag every line above with two to three startups that had attempted it. And here we were proposing taking down all five with three scared guys and no business network or money. Even in our jackass naivete, we started realizing this soon after the YC interview, which is why we eventually did that classic startup move, a pivot. This is absolutely canonical startup ease and worth exploring for a second. You can't read an article in Wired or Fast Company, some fawning fiction about a startup's inexorable and well-deserved charge to world domination, without reading this word at least once. A pivot is supposed to recall a ballerina's demi-détournée, a delicate change of course as graceful as it, hopefully, seems intentional. In reality, a startup's pivot is a panicked sprint comparable to that of a Titanic passenger who spotted the last open life raft. It wasn't even a one-time thing. Our final product would be informally titled Plan J, given the number of turns we had taken since Plan A. But there you have it, dear reader. We made a pivot. Plie! But we're getting ahead of ourselves. All this would become clear only after numerous strolls with Paul Graham, something we hadn't even won the right to have yet. Back to me skulking at Adkami while working on a Y Combinator application. If my reading of YC's and Paul Graham's essays was correct, then bomb-throwing anarchist subversive mixed with cold-blooded execution mixed with irreverent whimsy, a sort of technology-enabled 12-year-old boy, was precisely the YC entrepreneur profile. Figure out a point of overlooked business or technical leverage, interpose some piece of cleverness, and gleefully marvel at the resulting disruption or destruction. In that spirit did we respond to my favorite question on the YC application. Footnote. Little known fact. Y Combinator alums are the first readers of all Y Combinator applications and are essentially the first filter. This is the one question I always make it a point to read when reviewing Y Combinator applications. If the answer is left blank, my cursor is already halfway to the no button. If it reads something like, I'd never hack a system or do anything illegal, I hit that no button faster than a Jeopardy contestant buzzes in. End footnote. What non-computer system have you ever hacked? I conducted a man-in-the-middle attack on Craigslist's online dating ads. I posted an ad as a woman looking for a man and as a man looking for a woman. I'd pass email from real man to fictional woman as the replies of fictional man to the real women and basically cross the email streams. At one point, I shifted each person off my fictional email addresses and to the corresponding opposite-sex real email addresses. For all I know, it resulted in a marriage as I never saw emails after the rewiring of the email flow. And on it went for the rest of the questions. The soundbite tagline for the inchoate idea was drawn from personal history. We were building the Goldman Sachs of advertising, a grandiloquent assertion if there was one. This formulation of the X of Y, where X and Y are two easily understood things, but their intersection is novel or intriguing, was also classic Y combinator thinking. PG had actually suggested such a trope in his essay on pitching to investors. 
It's now terribly cliché, but at one point, like any meme, it enjoyed a period of almost classic establishment acceptance. Even now you hear it occasionally, the Uber of bicycles, the Netflix of men's underwear, and so on. It's a one-line way to instantly make your weird techno-business pastiche understood, even if only partially. The boys weren't totally convinced, even as we hustled to get our application in on time. They wouldn't be totally convinced until our first YC meeting, in which we were given a rousing oration by Paul Graham. Even in those tentative adcomy days, though, I knew YC would change everything if we got in. Plus, it was a prize, and a difficult-to-attain one at that. Whenever membership in some exclusive club is up for grabs, I viciously fight to win it. Even if only to reject membership when offered. After all, echoing the eminent philosopher G. Marx, how good can a club be if it's willing to have lowly me as a member? If you had been standing on the corner of Broadway and MacArthur Boulevard in Oakland the night of March 7, 2010, you would have seen a curious sight. A heavily pregnant woman, bent over in pain and scarcely able to walk, was being half-carried, half-dragged across the street by a tall, goateed man. The woman could barely stand and needed to pause and cling to either the man or any fixed object as they struggled across the last couple hundred feet. Every ten paces or so, the woman would double over and gasp in pain, bringing everything to a halt. The man was simultaneously trying to check for traffic, keep his female companion from collapsing, tow a large suitcase, and navigate the whole lurching ensemble toward the emergency room door. That goateed man, gentle reader, was me. The woman was a former City of London derivatives trader. She was 37 weeks pregnant. We had known each other for 39 weeks. Let's rewind before we fast forward again. Life is what happens when you're making other plans. If you ever run across an online dating profile with the above as a tagline, be aware you're in for one fucking life-changing date. I had found British Trader's profile while searching for the keyword sailing. Thematic searches, for example, physics, PhD, beer, were my way of finding some iota of common ground with which to structure an introductory message. At the time, online dating sites distinguished themselves mostly by the demographics of their members. Craigslist was for escorts, fat chicks in Fremont, and serial killers. OkCupid was for penniless hipster chicks who lived in shared flats in the Mission. Match.com was for professional women busy with the time-honored tradition of husband shopping. Choose your audience and write your ad copy. Mine was heavy on the sailing and outdoor adventuring. Zero mention of diaper changes and daycare drop-offs. Truth in advertising, more or less. She had vaguely Slavic-looking cheekbones and feline eyes. Her match profile photo featured her at the tiller of a boat, which instantly quintupled her attractiveness. Message led to dinner date. Dinner date led to an opera outing. One early Friday evening, dressed in her corporate finest, she appeared unannounced at the boatyard. My 26-foot sloop Moksha was hauled out on land, and I was busily refitting it for serious offshore sailing. Covered in dust and grease, I welcomed her to my boat. She climbed up the precarious 12-foot ladder to Moksha's deck, which towered over the ground due to the boat's deep keel. Then, a romantic reversal. The following weekend, a tall, rangy guy put his boat next to mine in the yard. A strapping and strutting South African, he walked over and we started talking boats. 
We got along famously and continued our unending string of boat talk with beer and pizza at the local red and white tablecloth Italian place. He was, as fate would have it, British trader's ex-boyfriend, who had recently and unceremoniously dumped her. This business was serious. As I'd eventually learned from British trader, they had tried having a child despite never marrying. Their inability to conceive had convinced British trader she was barren. He and I ended our boozing and bullshitting and got back to work on our respective boats. As I was painting the bottom, I looked over and saw some hot chick talking to my new South African friend. I saw only her jeans-clad ass. Given my as-yet non-comprehensive knowledge of her anatomy, I didn't recognize her. Of course, it was British trader, stopping by the yard to check randomly on my progress. Given there was only one large boatyard for serious refitting in the East Bay, meeting her recent bow wasn't a completely improbable coincidence. Weirded out by my bonding with her ex, she decided to end the budding romance. But then a week later, she changed her mind. I had brunch with her and her female confidant. On my finest social behavior, I passed muster with her friend. The next invitation was dinner at her house. When I appeared on her doorstep with a bottle of wine and a smile, she opened the door conspicuously made up, perfumed, and in a fetching dress. The moment that door swung open, I knew I had her. The contemporary honeymoon of a several-week fuckfest, consummated at the start of a new romantic liaison, played itself out comme il faut. No surprises, really, other than British traders' taste for being physically dominated in bed, a bit of a surprise given her alpha-female exterior. To a woman, every girlfriend of mine has been intelligent, ambitious, and independent, until very recently all were vastly more successful and wealthier than me. And yet, come the pressing hour of physical need, so unfolded the countless boudoir scenes recalling Fragonard's Le Verrou. A ravished chambermaid, half-resisting and half-yielding, violently seized in the arms of her predatory lover, who slammed shut the bolt on the bedroom door. The backdrop to the tryst-turned relationship was a modest bungalow fixer-upper that British trader had bought, taking advantage of a corporate relocation package. She made Bob Vila of this old house look like a fucking pussy. She had ripped out the ornate and custom-built-in shelves and display case from one room and installed them in another. The flooring was down to the planking, to be redone in fresh hardwood, by her, with a nail gun and lots of patience. The only room that was even remotely livable was the kitchen, which featured beautiful hardwood counters that were regularly oiled. Her bed consisted of a cheap foam mattress about the width of an extra jumbo-sized menstrual pad inside a room stripped to the wall studs. The floor was dusty with drywall powder from the demolition, and post-coitally, it was all I could do to balance myself precariously on the edge of the pad and off the drywall dust. Morning showers were in the one functioning bathroom, whose empty window frames were covered in plastic. A molded plastic shower in the corner and a lonely-looking white porcelain toilet were the only signs of civilization in what appeared to be the inside of a garden shed. The scene of conception was either the aforementioned foam pad or the hardwood kitchen counter. Two generations ago, her branch of the family, money Jews in Tsarist Russia, had seen the revolutionary writing on the wall and had fled to the United Kingdom. Another branch moved to China and became an established trading family in Harbin. In Britain, the family made the unlikely transition to landed gentry and ran a farm in Bedfordshire. 
A great-uncle was elevated to the peerage, and a second cousin shared the Nobel Prize with Alexander Fleming for penicillin. When she was in her teens, her father decided to move the family to the United States, where they suffered a financial reversal she was unwilling to talk about. Suddenly not among the moneyed class, she hustled herself through the red-brick boondocks of the University of Vermont. Citibank internship led to Deutsche Bank job, and after a few years she was an equity derivatives trader at Deutsche, holding her own against the tough sharks of the City of London. She had wild green eyes with unnatural red spots in her irises when you pulled close, reminiscent of that Afghan girl from the National Geographic cover. Her personality was flinty and rough, and as leathery as her skin. She had spent years between various jobs backpacking around the rougher parts of the world. She was an imposing, broad-shouldered presence, six feet tall and bare feet, and towering over me in heels. Most women in the Bay Area are soft and weak, cosseted and naive despite their claims of worldliness, and generally full of shit. They have their self-regarding entitlement feminism and ceaselessly vaunt their independence. But the reality is, come the epidemic plague or foreign invasion, they'd become precisely the sort of useless baggage you'd trade for a box of shotgun shells or a jerry can of diesel. British trader, on the other hand, was the sort of woman who would end up a useful ally in that post-apocalypse, doing whatever work, be it carpentry, animal husbandry, or a shotgun blast to someone's back, required doing. Long story short, you wanted to tie your genetic wagon to the bucking horse of her bloodline, which is why I was less nervous than I should have been on a random Saturday in July when I showed up for a brunch appointment and found her uncharacteristically moody. She complained of feeling nauseated and slightly out of it. With perhaps too much offhandedness, while grabbing the local newspaper off her couch, I suggested, well, perhaps do a pregnancy test. Like any male who's played it fast and loose with the safe sex rules, I'd had my share of scares. I was on season four of the show whereby tear-filled woman X shows up two weeks after the shag saying she had missed her period, sort of in the same way I'd say I missed my bus. Nothing had ever come of it, and after the third showing, you just wanted to say, look, woman, unless you've got a screaming infant in your arms and it looks like me, we have nothing to talk about. She'd have both soon enough. Well, I did go to the doctor, she replied instantly. Things took on a rather portentous air for a casual Saturday morning brunch. Ah, and? I am pregnant. Bam, a human life. Shit, I thought. I could hear God laughing in his vaulted hangout. Life is what happens when you're making other plans indeed. By her account, British trader had broken into tears on hearing the news from her doctor, whom she had gone to see on some routine visit. Yeah, that old story. One look into her hard, green eyes, and I knew this kid was seeing the light of day. Do more to some residual Catholic guilt and Hispanic chivalry than true love for British trader. I sublet my one-bedroom bohemian pad in the mission, which had followed my hippie chick household, and moved into her home turned construction site. I'd make a go of this domesticated parental life. If you jump into the abyss, jump headlong. Passed out on a gurney, British trader was bleeding. I watched with increasing alarm as red streaks traced bloody spiderwebs across her thighs. The nurses milled around like bored bureaucrats at a foreign post office and talked about paperwork and the weather. The progress of birthing is measured in centimeters. Seven centimeters dilated. Too late for anesthesia. Too late for fashionable breathing exercises. 
it was showtime. I invite anyone with a philosophical bent to witness a human birth and observe as unstoppable forces meet immovable objects, with neither yielding. Modern medicine does little to resolve this paradox made flesh. The only real differences between the bloody, screaming tableau before me and that of, say, my grandmother's birth a century ago in rural northern Spain by candlelight were the little plastic packets of mineral oil, like the salad dressing at a Denny's, that nurses would regularly crack open and pour over the heaving, tumescent mass down south. It was a sweaty, white-knuckle affair shattered by piercing shrieks of pain that resonated across the maternity ward and which the heavy institutional doors the nurses slammed shut did little to stifle. I quietly entertained bouts of madmen-esque nostalgia for a time when men simply paced nervously and smoked in some other room while the dirty business was completed. After two hours of battle, old flesh yielded bloodily to new, and Zoe Ayala came into the world. As some sort of perverse parting gift, I was given the honor of cutting the umbilical cord. As thick as a man's finger, with a yellow film over a deep purple core, it yielded to my snipping with a pair of small scissors, making a satisfying snap as I sheared the last fleshy connection between mother and child. Zoe wailed mightily. The nurse plopped her onto a stainless steel scale, topped by two infrared heating lamps, like the French fry station at McDonald's. Length and weight taken, she used a thick cotton blanket like a tortilla to wrap up Zoe. She put the baby burrito in my arms. For the first time, Zoe settled, the tight swaddling fooling her into thinking, for a few minutes, that she was back in the warm embrace of a mother's womb. She looked unbelievably small and frail and unready for a cold, hard world. Against all odds, YC had invited us to an interview. With a brief email and a link to a minimalist schedule appointment tool, the adventure was really afoot. I had snagged us the last interview spot on the last interview day, March 29th, betting on the usual election ballot strategy of being either first or last on any list. Thus it was late Sunday afternoon when we nervously appeared at YCHQ, an industrial space in a completely unremarkable part of Mountain View. With zero ceremony, we were told to proceed into the interview room, where the four YC partners were arranged behind a table like a military board of inquiry. Present was, of course, Paul Graham, along with his wife, Jessica Livingston, also a partner. Jessica had conducted a comprehensive series of interviews of the world's most successful entrepreneurs for her book Founders at Work, which was a startup anarchist's cookbook of personal memoir and advice. I had devoured it, and so should you if you want to play in this pond. Robert Tappan Morris, referred to as RTM by PG, was also present. He was a walking bit of computer science history, having created, in 1988, the world's first computer virus, which he released and for which he was criminally prosecuted under the then-nascent computer fraud law. Following his conviction, he joined PG in founding ViaWeb, the company whose acquisition jackpot had funded the very venture fund we were pitching. Presently, he was a professor of computer science at MIT, but he still participated in YC decisions. PG's one-line encomium of RTM was as absolute as it was brief. He's never wrong. Trevor Blackwell was the final and fourth partner, another ViaWeb co-founder. He was also the founder of AnyBots, a robotics company that actually owned the building we were standing in. 
and in which YC would become an ever-expanding subtenant. The Anybots labs around the Y Combinator space looked like scenes from the Terminator series and housed piles of Skynet-like robotic equipment that seemed it might come to life any moment. So you want to create the Goldman Sachs of advertising, eh? PG challenged the moment we walked in. With that abrupt start, I tried to follow our plan of my speaking for the first 30 seconds to pitch the general idea and then to proceed to a demo of the hacked-together technology on which we'd spent several sleepless nights. I was 15 seconds into it when the question started. PG. How do you join the online click to the physical person in the store? Before we could finish an answer, Trevor butted in with the question. What do you mean it's too expensive to buy ads across the U.S.? RTM. How are you going to even scan the products and know what's for sale? PG. So how do you get paid again? And on it went. One of us would try to answer one question, but before we had even gotten started, there came another question, and someone else dove in. The whole thing devolved into what might have been mistaken for a heated discussion on Israel-Palestine among a bunch of drunks of mixed political persuasions. And the pace never relented. There were two or three overlapping conversations going at once. While jumping in to answer any hanging question, or to back up one of the boys on a statement, I was keeping an eye on the clock at my left. Oversized, like something you'd see at a sporting event, it counted down relentlessly from ten minutes to zero, all the time we had. Throughout all this, Jessica didn't say a word, and merely observed us impassively from one flank. After more wrangling, and with no demo taking place, time was up. We'll talk about it and get back to you today pronounced P.G. finally. And that was that. In retrospect, those were the ten most important minutes in my life. Standing outside, we marinated in the stomach-churning feeling of collective failure. Randomly, we ran into one of the founders of Mixpanel, one of the many successful startups that had graduated from YC and had gone on to great things. YC alums often came to the interviews in an attempt to calm applicants' nerves and to provide a better signal in the interview process. The Mixpanel founder did precisely the opposite, attacking our idea, the marketing plan, and the business model. By the end of these two bouts of abuse, a suicide pact was but a criticism away. Fuck it, let's go for a beer, I proposed. Yeah, let's go, echoed Argyris. MRM, who curled into a ball when he got upset, opted to go home and be with his kids. The beer venue was the only decent beer bar in Silicon Valley at the time, a pestilential but cozy cinderblock pit that fashioned itself British, with football pennants and Premier League on the screen. The Rose and Crown was popular with the few hip Stanford grad students who hung around Palo Alto, and it fortunately tended to exclude the Abercrombie and Fitch-wearing VC larvae. Just as a vine Stefaner hit my hand and I searched for a bench in the narrow beer garden, the phone rang. I didn't recognize the number. This is Paul Graham from YC. We'd like to fund you. Shock. Disbelief. Ah, well, uh, so one of the co-founders isn't here. I should probably ask him first. Wrong answer. Like idiots, we hadn't decided among ourselves whether we were committed. The boys, MRM especially, weren't sold on this YC business. You need to ask him first? Uh, let me call you back in five minutes. 
One major unpleasantness involved in writing a memoir is the historian's task of rereading your personal archive of texts, messages, and emails. In contemplating an earlier version of yourself, you'll realize that young and glorious you was in fact a total and complete fuckwit. An older you, going back and whispering in your young ear, would issue not praise and encouragement, but insults and dire warnings. I told Argiras the news and cut him off when he asked a question. I had to call MRM. Hello? He answered, with what sounded like a sporting match in the background. His kids were playing soccer. Dude, YC wants to fund us. You in? It actually took some convincing. If memory serves, I even packaged it as a provisional thing we could back out of, if need be. Calling back PG, I was horrified to get his voicemail. In as unpanicked a voice as I could manage, I left a message accepting the offer and followed up with an email to Harjeet Tagger, a former YC founder who was helping manage the interview process. We were in. The languorous Sunday afternoon crowd at Rose and Crown looked on indifferently as I called British Trader to announce the news. We'd not only managed to abandon the sinking ship of Adkami, we'd flagged down another passing vessel in our mad swim away from that soon-to-be wreck. Abandoning the Shipwreck Whoever doesn't have revolutionary genes or doesn't have revolutionary blood, whoever doesn't have the courage, heart, or brain that adapts itself to the effort and heroism of the revolution, let them go. We don't want them. We don't need them. Fidel Castro, speech at Mariel, Cuba, May 1980. April 23, 2010. Here's more startup advice. If the drama around your departure from a startup recalls that of a former East German trying to jump the wall or Cubans hijacking airliners to Miami, then you should be as ecstatic at leaving as that same East German or Cuban. We had decided to all go in together to Murthy's office to offer our resignations, with some vague thought that this would represent a united front. Without much warning, we entered his office on some thin pretext. I can't recall who spoke first. I think it was me. But we announced our plan to leave Adkami and start our own thing. Murthy launched into a harangue about what ingenuous rubes we were. What are the five things to look for in a term sheet? I bet you don't even know that, he challenged, looking right at me. I had read my share of business agreement how-tos, but this wasn't the time to test that rather tenuous knowledge. Murthy was just picking up steam, though. You realize, when you go to a venture capitalist, the first thing he's going to do is call me, and I'm going to tell him what I think of you, he said, gesturing to his phone. You aren't the right people to build a company. You don't know what you're doing. You're not smart enough or tough enough. And so it went on for a good five minutes. One of Mark Twain's more uplifting quotes maintains that small people always belittle your ambitions, while the great make you feel that you too can be great. Murthy was most assuredly a small man. By the end of his drilling, we all doubted what would eventually prove to be the best decision any of us ever made. Shoulders slumped and heads bowed, we marched out of his glass office. What followed was a week of nonstop harassment from Adkami. Matt and Argiris fielded most of it, and for good reason. According to our code repository statistics, McEachin had written literally half the code in the Adkami code base. As employee number 11, he was that archetypal figure on every product team, the silverback, the neckbeard, the absolute expert who knew all the secret scripts that could be run and where all the technical bodies were buried. And he was that person for just about every product the company had ever made. 
all the ill-conceived, disconnected, and random functionality that lay unwanted and unmonetized in hundreds of thousands of lines of code. Like all good bullies, Murthy and company could smell weakness like sharks smell blood in the water. Of the three, McEachin was the most economically dependent, as he had a stay-at-home wife, two kids, and a mortgage. He also had the greatest sense of investment in the company. So they worked the uncertainty and fear angle, convincing him he was throwing away all he had built at Adkame. To sweeten the deal, they threw more equity at him. None of it was convincing, and McEachin remained steadfast. Their attempts to keep me were relatively brief and consisted mostly of one uncomfortable conversation with the new VP of Engineering, Chandra Sarna. Chandra was a recent hire from Friendster, where he claimed to have put out the technical fires that had resulted from rapid scaling. He had brought a crew of engineers with him from the dying social network, and they formed the nucleus of his personal mafia. He managed mostly through intimidation. In his ill-fitting polyester polo shirts with color palettes stolen from the late 70s, he reminded me of the bored auto rickshaw drivers in front of Connacht Place, Delhi, who'd overcharge you a hundred rupees to go down the street to Paharganja. Having been told to report to his office, I took a seat in front of his desk. The bright South Bay sun of a cloudless afternoon poured in through his picture window. So, is there anything we can do compensation-wise, Antonio? asked Chandra in his thick Indian accent. No way. Why do you want to leave? he asked, with a concerned look that feigned an almost fatherly interest. As always with me, my principal sin was telling the unvarnished truth. Because we have no products, we have no clients, there's not a single paying client for anything Adkami has ever produced on its own. Chandra shot up from his desk. Of course we have paying clients he said, gesticulating wildly at a PowerPoint slide bedecked with logos on his monitor. The slides were from Murthy's most recent quarterly pep rally. How can you say that? he sputtered. I kept my mouth shut and looked past Chandra at the view of Foster City and the San Mateo Bridge. I think I'd like to try my own thing, I offered, citing a less controversial motive. Look, you don't know anything about doing startups, he began, and on into the spiel about how we were clueless neophytes. He wrapped up with a gesture at reconciliation. And as for McEachin, he's had some problems, but we've tried working with him to improve things. McEachin and Chandra seriously did not get along. McEachin's good-natured earnestness and total allegiance to unbiased technical truth conflicted severely with Chandra's love of power and control. McEachin treated anyone, from an intern to the CTO, with the same frank openness, where only reason or data prevailed. Chandra demanded the deferential obeisance a Prussian general expected from his troops, meanwhile pledging in turn sycophantish allegiance to Murthy. Thanks to Chandra, the company had already lost its very capable head of analytics. Others would soon follow. After he was done barking discouragement, we stared at each other for an awkward few moments. His arm rose with a quick start, indicating I could leave. That jiggly little man didn't even stand up as I walked out the door. This scene was duly reported to Murthy, and for the next several days, management was very careful to keep me out of meetings and away from product teams. I imagine they were afraid I'd propagate my theory about the productlessness of the company. For once, I kept my mouth shut. After a tense week, it was all over but the shouting. Murthy and Chandler had had their go at McEachin and me, with zero result. We would be gone within days. Our gearies would unfortunately not get off so easily. 
Murthy, as happened at many flailing startups, was making yet another big product bet in a string of such bets that was sure to turn Adkami's fortunes around. This time it's different. Argiris's algorithmic work was absolutely central to this new company-saving direction, and his departure meant delaying or foregoing that bet. For this last piece of retention skullduggery, Adkami would exploit one critical point. Argiris wasn't a U.S. citizen. The American immigrant visa system amounts to indentured servitude, a type of peonage. This medieval institution has a long history in the United States. Before the American Revolution, half of the European immigrants to the British colonies came over as indentured servants. Poor children or young adults with no prospects in Europe would sell years of their labor in exchange for passage to the Americas. Across the pond, employers would purchase these individuals from the captains who had brought them over, and they were pressed into service or apprenticed to craftsmen. Servants could be bought or sold, as with slavery. Also as in slavery, servants were subject to physical punishment, including whipping. They could not marry without permission, and their contract was enforceable by the law. Escaped servants were captured and returned. If female servants became pregnant, their contract was extended to compensate for the time out of work. At the end of the contract, servants were given their freedom dues, a small cash payment, and set free to seek their fortunes in their new homeland. Not much has changed in Silicon Valley. Skilled immigrant tech workers in the United States have effectively one method of entry, the famous H-1B visa. Capped at a small yearly number, it's the ticket to the American dream for a few tens of thousands of foreigners per year. Lasting anywhere from three to six years, the H-1B allows foreigners to prove themselves and eventually apply for permanent residency, the colloquial green card. Like the masters of old buying servants off the ship, tech companies are required to spend non-trivial sums for foreign hires. Many companies, particularly smaller startups, don't want the hassle and hire only American citizens, an imposed nativism nobody talks about and which is possibly illegal. Big companies, which know they'll be around for the years it will take to recoup their investment, are the real beneficiaries of this peonage system. Large but unexciting tech outfits like Oracle, Intel, Qualcomm, and IBM that have trouble recruiting the best American talent hire foreign engineers by the boatload. Consultancy firms that bill inflated project costs by the man-hour, such as Accenture and Deloitte, shanghai their foreign laborers, who can't quit without being eventually deported by paying them relatively slim H-1B-stipulated salaries while eating the fat consultancy fees, such companies get rich off the artificial employment monopoly created by the visa barrier. It's a shit deal for the immigrant visa holders, but they put up with the five or so years of stultifying, exploitive labor as an admissions ticket to the tech-first world. After that, they're free. Everyone abandons his or her place at the oar inside the Intel war galley immediately but there's always someone waiting to take over. Strictly speaking, H-1B visas are non-immigrant and temporary, and so this hazing ritual of immigrant initiation is unlawful. Yet everyone's on the take, including the government, which charges thousands in filing fees. The entire system is so riven with institutionalized lies, political intrigue, and illegal but overlooked manipulation, it's a wonder the American tech industry exists at all. So into this bustling slave market, echoing with the clink of leg irons and the auctioneer's cry, did we ignorantly wade. If Argiris was to join our as-yet-unnamed company, he'd need a work visa. In fact, forget working. 
He couldn't even legally stay in the United States once Adkemi terminated him. Immigration law stipulates a former H-1 holder must leave the country within days. Thanks for building our tech industry, you dirty foreigner. Now beat it. Was there a way out? Argiris, a proud Greek with an admirable display of Southern European enterprise and skill at sniffing out legal loopholes, found a solution. His longtime Turkish girlfriend, Simla, was studying for a Ph.D. at Stanford under an F-1 student visa. Were they to marry, Argiris would qualify for an F-2 student spouse visa. This wouldn't let him officially work in the States, but it would let him remain there. The only hitch was, well, getting hitched. Simla proved very accommodating and agreed, though the wedding at City Hall was to be officially treated as socially non-official. My proposal for a bachelor party was vetoed. Greek married Turk, despite millennia of geopolitical conflict going back to Herodotus, and we still had a third founder. Except for one stupid mistake. As our final week at Adkemi wound down, Murthy and Chonder would shut Argiris in an office and try to sweat him, filling his mind with dark visions of the future. You're throwing your future away on this crazy venture, Argiris. You're abandoning Adkemi when we most need you, Argiris. When you leave Adkemi, your H-1 visa will be canceled and you'll be forced to leave the United States and everything you've built here, Argiris. Argiris put up with the hazing as best he could. But at the last point, he couldn't help himself, blurting out, The visa isn't an issue. I'll have an F-2 through my wife, so whatever. This perked up the ears of Chandra and Murthy. They consulted their in-house legal counsel, who, like those of any tech company, knew their way around U.S. immigration law. They informed Argiris that working under an F-2 visa was illegal. Strictly speaking, this wasn't completely true. F-2 visa holders are allowed to remain in the United States and be investors in U.S. companies, which Argiris was soon to be as founders officially invest in a company by buying its shares at a negligible price. And given that we had almost no money, we weren't paying ourselves, and so Argiris wasn't officially working. Like many startup founders from foreign countries, many of whom have contributed immeasurably to the economic and technical success of this country, Argiris lived in a legal gray area until we managed to get him an H-1 visa. That was all beside the point in Adkemi's mind, however. As upstanding corporate citizens, they felt obliged, obliged, to inform the Immigration Service that their former employee was attempting to violate immigration law, though again, we weren't technically. He didn't want to be reported to the immigration authorities, did he? Think about that for a moment. A venture-backed tech company with hundreds of employees and high hopes of going public was threatening to report Argiris to the much-feared U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Referred to by the appropriately chilling acronym ICE, this agency is charged with arresting aliens and jailing them or putting them on the first plane out of the United States. Adkemi was effectively coercing Argiris, as an unscrupulous foreman of a fruit-picking crew in California's Central Valley does with illegal farm workers. What's even more ironic, Murthy Nukala and Chandra Sarna were themselves economic immigrants, having left their native India for the United States but a few years earlier. Both had been forced to navigate the U.S. visa system, suffer the H-1 debt bondage, and live at the pleasure of some sponsoring company. And here they were, the former slaves turned slave owners, cracking the visa whip on Argiris. Argiris, to his everlasting credit, became fed up with this demeaning treatment. 
rather than knuckle under. He bolted his balls on, went into Adkami one last time, and told them to go suck a dick. They could report him if they wanted. And that was the end of that. If Adkami ever reported him, we'd never know. But soon enough, after we regularized Argiris' visa status at our yet-to-be-formed company, it wouldn't matter. On the last hour of the last day, McEachin, saint that he was, went to Murthy's office to say goodbye. He had invested over four years of his life in the company, watching it grow from a small shared space to the expansive floor of a high-end office tower. I waited impatiently by the emergency exit staircase to avoid running into any other employees. After ten minutes or so, he emerged, looking astonished or maybe shell-shocked. He barely even looked up from the screen. His voice cracked as he said it. He looked at me imploringly. For a moment, I thought he might actually cry. He didn't say anything and didn't shake my hand. Matt McEachin, Adkami's best, most productive engineer, until the day he left, the author of the biggest chunk of Adkami's code base, was treated worse than a contract janitor on the way out. I marveled at a world in which well-meaning, industrious, but naive engineers are routinely manipulated by the glib entrepreneurs who seduce them into joining their startups, then relinquish them when they are no longer useful. Every jobs has his Wozniak. I couldn't exactly claim I wasn't, to some degree, doing the same to him right then. He was merely trading Murthy for me. Engineers can be so smart about code, and yet so dense about human motivations. They'd be better served by reading less Neil Stevenson and more Shakespeare and Patricia Highsmith. No time for philosophy now. We were committed. Let's get the hell out of here, man. I flung open the emergency exit and we flew down the stairs, five flights to the ground floor and out of that nightmare. But Adkami would cast a long shadow on us indeed. The business-savvy reader will at this point be giggling at our naivete, the schoolboyish reverence with which we beheld the corporate trappings and power we felt we were rebelling against. Our problem was that we had never known how the sausage got made. We had never gotten our hands on the levers of the world, even slightly. The reality is, Silicon Valley capitalism is very simple. Investors are people with more money than time. Employees are people with more time than money. Entrepreneurs are simply the seductive go-betweens. Startups are business experiments performed with other people's money. Marketing is like sex. Only losers pay for it. Company culture is what goes without saying. There are no real rules, only laws. Success forgives all sins. People who leak to you, leak about you. Meritocracy is the propaganda we use to bless the charade. Greed and vanity are the twin engines of bourgeois society. Most managers are incompetent and maintain their jobs via inertia and politics. Lawsuits are merely expensive feints in a well-scripted conflict narrative between corporate entities. Capitalism is an immoral farce in which every player, investor, employee, entrepreneur, consumer, is complicit. But hey, look at these shiny iPhones, right? At the time, we understood none of this. We'd figure it out soon enough.